Uh, We have been considering uh, the ten plagues. And we have had a spectacular tapestry woven together that gloriously reveals the supremacy and the superiority of our God. Uh, His glory, His power and His majesty has been clearly revealed. As He tears down brick by brick the elaborate pantheon of Egyptian gods, they have been absolutely destroyed, proven to be powerless, pathetic and pointless. The heavenly megaphone declares loudly throughout the land of Egypt that Yahweh is Lord and there is none like Him. That is the clear message of the ten plagues that we have been considering. I decided this week that I'm not quite ready to move on from the plague drama just yet and hence tonight I want to spend our time considering the response of Pharaoh towards the plagues in a sermon that I have entitled, Is It Real? Or is it fake? Uh, but before we begin, let's pray. Our oh, Father, what a great joy it is to come and worship today. As we come now to the preaching of the word, we ask for all distractions to be removed. Our uh, Father, we need to be fed, for we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Oh, please feed us this day. Our oh, Lord, please help me as the preacher to, to speak clearly and to speak the truth. And we do ask for the divine assistance from your spirit that we so desperately need. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now I read what I think is a tongue-in-cheek quote recently that said, One is an atheist until their plane starts falling. And this reminded me of a story that I once read, and it went like this. Now raised in the secular 70s, completely unchurched. A young pilot had no room for God. In fact, he was a God mocker until he ran out of fuel in an Alaskan storm miles from his destination. The pilot radioed in to an airport for a weather check and he received the all clear. But as he flew closer, the weather took a severe turn and it meant that he was unable to land his small plane. He decided to take the chance that his fuel would hold out, but the snowstorm intensified so much so that he could no longer see the terrain. His options were evaporating as fast as he could fly. He had been flying on empty for 30 minutes and then the engine started missing. At this time, his mind turned to his very last option, God. He had never prayed before, but in desperation, he lifted up a silent prayer. If there is a God, I need your help now. Then a voice spoke to him that was crystal clear. Son, you said the right thing. Now immediately after his prayer, the plane popped out of the snowstorm. Before him were the beautiful lights of the city, but there was still one problem. He had to fly another 20 miles over an expense of water to reach the airports. We said this was a breath holder. When he landed safely, his humanist worldview collapsed. It was shot to pieces. There was no earthly reason his plane should have traveled such a distance with no fuel. The pilot believes God added an hour of fuel to his tanks to save his life. We said after this ordeal, when I landed, I was a different boy. I was not a Christian, but I was a believer in God. 
Now, I don't know how much truth is in this story, but it illustrates a very real and common human experience. One doesn't want God when things are going well, when life is all sunshine and lollipops, but when everything goes wrong and every possible avenue has been exhausted, it is then that one turns to God as their last resort. Not necessarily in a saving sense, but they seek Him hoping to be freed from their difficult circumstances. And we see this in the narrative before us. Now, of course, Pharaoh was definitely not an atheist. He was at the opposite extreme of the scale. He was a polytheist. He believed in hundreds, if not thousands of gods. In fact, he believed that he himself was one of the gods. And as things began to fall apart, as Egypt was shot to pieces, he makes some interesting remarks directed towards the Lord. Directed towards the one who he originally questioned his very existence. And I want to consider two very similar responses of the Pharaoh as his empire was ferociously turned upside down and inside out. So response number one is the deceitful, uh, sorry, the deceitful declaration. I had the wrong D in my mind. Uh, Could you please open your Bible, if you're not there, to Exodus chapter 9. So Exodus uh, chapter 9, and we will read from verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Entreat the Lord, for it is enough that there be no more mighty thunderings and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said unto him, As soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest know how that the earth is the Lord's. But as for thee and thy servants, I know that ye will not fear the Lord God's. And the flax and the barley was smitten, for the barley was in ear and the flax was bold. But the wheat and the rye were not smitten, for they were not grown up. And Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, and spread abroad his hands unto the Lord, and the thunders and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured upon the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more, and hardened his heart and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Imagine being an Egyptian at this time. Now, they were a proud people. They possessed a glorious land. Their infrastructure was impressive. Their empire was powerful and their economy was booming. And yet, they were enduring these brutal divine attacks that were tearing everything apart. These were assaults that had never before been witnessed, and their gods seemed to have deserted them. Picture the devastation, the irritation and the frustration. The Nile's been turned to blood. There's frogs, there's lice, there's flies, death of the cattle and a terrible dose of boils. 
Or imagine all those graves that had to be dug for the beasts. Or the welts and the sores that must have covered all of the people. And the hideous stench that must have filled the land from the death and decay. And that great sense of absolute abandonment as their gods do absolutely nothing. Despite everything going haywire. Anxiety levels must have been high. And just when they think things couldn't get any worse, a devastating hailstorm is unleashed. Now this is a ferocious storm. The worst to ever be released upon Egypt. Never before and never again to this day has such devastation come from the skies according to chapter 9 verse 18. And what is particularly fascinating with this declaration is that when a pharaoh wanted to have a brag session, tell everyone how great he was, he would pronounce that he is doing greater things than all the things that have been done in the land since it was formed. And here is the Lord pronouncing that he is about to unleash a hailstorm more ferocious, more powerful, more devastating than anything ever witnessed since the land has been formed. You know, surely this is a reference to Pharaoh's bragging statement. Now, as the rain, lightning, hail and balls of fire rip through Egypt, destroying everything in their path, annihilating the agriculture industry, no doubt destroying much infrastructure, And many lives would have been taken. Imagine the fear that would have swept through Egypt like a raging torrent. And it is as this seventh plague is unleashed that Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron. It is interesting in verse 27 that Pharaoh doesn't call the priests. He doesn't call the wise men. He doesn't call the magicians. It seems as though he's given up on them. They have proven to be impotent since the third plague. He knew that Moses and Aaron held the key to the solution as they had on the previous six plagues and hence they were summoned. And don't miss the point that they had to navigate their way to the king's presence during this devastating storm. And yet they remained unaffected. God protecting his men. Now it seems from the text that this plague had a particular effect on Pharaoh. It's impossible to know exactly what is happening in his heart, but surely this devastation unloaded on his empire was having a pretty dramatic effect. It's evident that he comes closer than he has at any other time to some form of repentance. Notice what he declares in verse 27. He says, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and I and my people are wicked. On the surface, this sounds pretty good, doesn't it? No, Pharaoh admits sin. Perhaps this is the first time he's done this in his life. He acknowledges that the Lord is righteous. And we must understand that this is a very big step. Because at the beginning, he denied Yahweh's existence. The concept of righteous includes the idea of being the judge. And admitting that both he and his people were wicked, 
was an admission that this judgment was just. So it looks as though there is some change in the heart of this man, that this hard heart is starting to soften at least a little. Or is this just a facade? Is this genuine repentance or is this pseudo-repentance? That is the question. Although this confession sounds convincing, it fails to stand up under close scrutiny. Notice that he says, I have sinned this time. Now, what a startling revelation. Here he is minimizing his sin. He admits that he has done wrong at this point in time. But what about the other occurrences where he's hardened his heart? What about the fact that he had God's people enslaved for hundreds of years? What about those little boys who were cast into the river because of his horrific decree? And yet he says at this time. It's evident that this man was willing to admit one or two wrongs, but was unwilling to recognize the full depths of his depravity. Falling short of true repentance is made especially clear in verse 28. In this verse, he exhorts Moses to approach the Lord for him. He doesn't confess before the Lord himself, which is what will occur with true and genuine confession. For when a man is truly sorry for his sin, he will take it straight to the Lord, and yet Pharaoh fails to do this. Verse 28 is also very important because it reveals the motive behind this supposed repentance. Pharaoh and the people wanted this devastating storm to be removed. That's their motive. And hence, Pharaoh plays games with God. If you do this for me, then I will do this for you. Now, who does this man think he is? What tenacity, what pride to play games with God. And beloved, we too must be sure that we don't do this. No, Lord, I will do this for you if you do this for me. My friend, that is not how it works. He is God, we are not. We cannot twist the hand of the Almighty. There is no, I will scratch your back if you scratch mine with the Lord's. Now, what this statement from Pharaoh reveals is the fact that he was not concerned about his sin. He couldn't care less about the sin, but rather the consequences of his sin. That's all he was concerned about, and that is not true repentance. The ruler wanted the terrible hailstorm to cease, and that is it. He was under intense pressure as his land and his people are barraged and he just wanted it all to stop. And he would say whatever was needed to be said in order to be relieved from the destruction. And it's very interesting that Moses in verse 30 shows incredible discernment and reveals that this was not a genuine confession, for they did not possess a sincere fear of God. Moses knew that this supposed fear, which as an aside, this is the first occurrence of this important phrase, fear of the Lord. But Moses knew 
that this would only last as long as the conditions demanded it. And this was proven to be correct, as we'll see shortly. Now in verse 33, we see the glorious grace of God. Moses leaves the presence of Pharaoh. It's very interesting that he never seeks the Lord. He never prays in the presence of the king. He always leaves. And perhaps this is because he didn't want the ruler to think that he himself, Moses, possessed the power. This was all of the Lord's. One author said, Moses proposed, but it was the Lord who disposed. And notice also, we are informed that Moses left the city. And don't forget at this time that this storm, this horrific hail is still raging. And Moses shows complete trust in the Lord that he would be protected. He not only traveled in the storm, but he stood and prayed for the cessation of the storm in the very location it was being unleashed. And yet he remained untouched. This is a further demonstration of the Lord's discrimination between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And it's a further declaration of God's amazing power. Now, upon seeking the Lord and pleading that this devastating storm would stop, verse 33 says, it ceased. The rain, the lightning, the hail, it instantly ceased in a sudden and dramatic manner. What a powerful declaration of the Lord's power. Now, imagine that they have been pelted and smashed by this hail and then bang, instantly it's all over. You can almost hear the collective sigh of relief ringing through Egypt as this storm ceased. But imagine the sadness as they inspected the land. I have seen a few pretty bad storms and it can look like a war zone when it's finished. Imagine the devastating damage of a storm that was like none other. And despite all of this, Notice the response of Pharaoh in verse 34. Now this proves that his confession was fake, that it was, sim- it was simply deceit to get what he wanted to experience relief from the consequences. For it says in verse 34 that when it all ceased, he again hardened his heart, he refused to release the people. He resumed his stubborn and proud stance, proving that his repentance was fake. For if it was true and sincere, it would have led to obedience, and yet it did not. And true repentance will lessen our impulse to commit the same sin again, and yet this was certainly not the case. As soon as he had opportunity, he again hardened his heart. But perhaps the greatest travesty is that Pharaoh ignores God's rich mercy in halting this storm. Now the picture of man's depravity and corruptness is painted in all of its unfathomable ugliness in this example of Pharaoh. Now this ruler thinking that his ploy had obviously worked, he had got his way. Little did he realize he was storing wrath upon wrath as Romans 1 teaches us. Now, he decided that he would implement this fake repentance again. And this leads us to the second response, 
the disgraceful display. So please turn over a page or two to Exodus chapter 10, and we will read from verse 16. Exodus chapter 10, and we'll read from verse 16. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God, that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the coast of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go. I don't know about you, but I get a strong sense of deja vu. This is almost identical to the previous encounter. In fact, it's actually intensified. He's more intense in this confession. And this reveals the wickedness and rottenness of Pharaoh. He again employs fake repentance, again thinks he can negotiate with God. And once again, this is not genuine, although it may sound very proper. For all that Pharaoh is concerned about is relief. His confession is a form of manipulation to get what he wanted. This is the eighth plague that we have recorded before us. A plague of locusts like never seen before had taken over the land and great was the destruction. Remembering a locust can eat their own body weight in one day. And that one square mile of locusts would contain between 100 million and 200 million locusts. And Egypt had been invaded by billions of these destructive critters. They covered every square millimetre. And any vegetation that remained was engulfed. Verse 15 tells us they ate the herbs, they ate the fruit, they ate the trees, they ate the crops, they ate everything. Egypt was left to look like a barren and deserted land. Pharaoh, sensing this dire predicament that his empire was in, again calls Moses and Aaron. And there is a real sense of urgency. Verse 16 tells us he sought them hastily. And as I thought about this, if I was Moses, I would have grown pretty impatient by now. And yet he and his brother come before the king again. Now the previous confession that we just considered sounded convincing. But this second one is in a different league. It is as though Pharaoh went to repentance school between these plagues. He again admits his sin. And he acknowledges that this was against both God and the Israelites. So more has been added to this confession. In verse 17, he seeks forgiveness. So this all sounds like textbook confession. There is a great intensity And yet, this again is proven to be fake. Now, what tenacity from this man putting God to the foolish test again. For notice his motivation in the last phrase of verse 17, that he may take away from me this death only. He would do and say anything to have this plague removed. 
He was not concerned about his sin. He couldn't care less. It was just the consequences that he wanted removed. He was again up to his same old tricks. Now the mercy and patience of God is again on display. Now he knew the heart of Pharaoh. And yet when Moses seeks the Lord, we are told that the Lord raises up this contrary wind and relieves the land of Egypt from the locusts. And notice that it says not one was left in the land. What amazing power, not one was left behind. And also please look at verse 19. It says that they were cast into the Red Sea. Now surely that's a prophetic utterance of what will happen to the pursuing army in time to come. Now with the locusts gone, picture how the land must have looked. No vegetation left. Much must have been the uncertainty among the people. What are we going to do? The food supply is gone. Our economy is in ruin. Perhaps they had some resources stored away like Joseph of old. But things were not looking good for the Egyptian empire. They had been completely devastated. And yet despite all this, verse 20 tells us that Pharaoh's heart is again hardened. And he refuses to release the people. No, again, he said the words of repentance, but he didn't follow through with action, proving this to be fake. He was not concerned about the sin. No, he hated the consequences of sin without ever learning to hate the sin itself. His repentance was simply playing games with God, endeavoring to manipulate the situation to get what he wanted. It may have sounded like repentance, but it was far from it. So this is Pharaoh's fake repentance. The question is, what can we take from it? I want to leave you with two potential dangers that we must be wary of. So number one is the danger of counterfeit repentance. A repentance is defined by theologian Charles Ryrie as a genuine change of mind that affects the life in some way. It's also been defined as a change of mind and a change of purpose. For our purposes this evening, I don't want to discuss saving repentance, although the dangers raised are certainly applicable But rather, I want to look at repentance and confession in our relationship with God and with one another. Dealing with sin is an incredibly important aspect in maintaining the health and quality of a relationship, both with God and in our human relationships. But there is a very real danger that we can become like Pharaoh and employ counterfeit repentance. Pharaoh's repentance was fake for at least three reasons. So number one, he was not grieved at the sin itself, just the consequences of the sin. And we too can be guilty of this. True repentance is grieved with the sin itself. It hates the sin, not just the consequences of it. It will allow me to illustrate. 
No, when we upset our spouse, if we apologize just because we're sick of the cold shoulder treatment, we want to get rid of the consequences, that is not true repentance. When we come and confess our sin to God, simply because it's causing us much pain and we want that pain removed, that is not true confession. Genuine repentance acknowledges the sin and will accept the consequences. The second reason it was fake, because his repentance did not lessen his resolve to commit the same sin again. As soon as these consequences were removed, he immediately hardened his heart and refused to release the people. True repentance will produce a desire to not want to do it again. It doesn't mean we will never do it again in our whole lives. But if one supposedly repents and then immediately does the same thing again, one needs to question the sincerity. Now imagine this, Emma, I apologize for being a jerk to you. I am really, really sorry. And then I continue to be a jerk. That is not sincere. That is not true repentance. Lord, I confess this sin. I confess my anger. And then I immediately continue to be angry. That is not true repentance. Number three, and this is linked to the second, Pharaoh's repentance didn't lead to change. A true repentance will bring about change. It will result in obedience. As one writer put it, true repentance is a change of heart that produces a change of life. It's not just a change of mind that what I'm doing is wrong, but it's a change of purpose to do something about it. A confession that leads to absolutely no change is a false confession. And you know, the question to ask yourself, and the question that I need to ask myself, is, is my repentance real or is it fake? Or when I confess to God, or when I deal with sin in our personal relationships, are we doing it the right way? May we, with the help of the Holy Spirit, be determined to only offer sincere and genuine confession, both to God and in our human relationships. For if we do not, my friend, we don't deceive God, we only deceive ourselves. And we, like Pharaoh, will end up hardening our hearts and no good comes from that. Beloved, make sure your repentance is real, not fake. Now, the second danger I want to identify is that of a circumstantial relationship. Have you ever had someone in your life that only ever wants something to do with you when they want or need something? You will never hear from them for months or months. Then all of a sudden, when they need something, they come running back and they want to be best friends. I'm sure you've all experienced this. And this is what Pharaoh did with God. Now, he wanted nothing to do with the Lord. He even questioned his existence. And yet, when it all went wrong, when Pharaoh's world was turned upside down and inside out, he came to the Lord's. Now, he was an atheist until his plane started falling. 
And beloved, this is what God often does. You know, he uses suffering, heartache and upheaval to draw people to himself. Uses difficulties to break down the thick walls of pride and rid one of self-reliance. Now unfortunately it often has the opposite effect and people become hard, but that's another sermon. But it is clear before us that devastating circumstances made Pharaoh consider God. But the point that I want to make is the fact that as soon as the circumstances became easy, he reneged and wanted nothing to do with God. But this is shocking. It's a classic use of what we would say, use and abuse. But how often we can be guilty of doing the exact same thing. We are faced with a difficult set of circumstances. You know, our life is turned upside down, inside out, and it drives us to the Lord. And that's a good thing. We find grace, we find peace, comfort and strength. The Lord enables us, equips us, strengthens us and helps us through the difficulty. We are so encouraged. We feel so close to the Lord. But then life begins to get a little easier. The difficulties subside and we start to push God away. Oh Lord, you got me out of this struggle. Thank you. I'm right now. I can handle this myself. We go back to our autonomous way. And the ease of life results in us drifting away from the Lord. Now this is a very real problem for the Christian, forgetting God when life is good. One writer said, It's harder to walk with God in the sunshine of success than in the nipping frosts of failure. Now it's so easy to forget the Lord when the sailing is smooth. When life is great, when all is well. When there is money, when there is health, when there is love and friendship, when there is work, when we possess material things, when there is happiness, it's so easy to become self-sufficient and shut the Lord out. It's so easy to drift away from the Lord rather than drawing nearer when our lives are easy. And perhaps this is where you are at tonight. But your life is pretty comfortable. And as a result, you are not as close to God as you were when you walked through those dark valleys. My friend, stop drifting away and draw back to Him. For He promises in the book of James, if we draw nigh to Him, He will draw nigh to us. Don't allow the good things of life, the ease of life, to drive a wedge between you and the Lord. And my friend, don't have a relationship with Jesus that is based on circumstances. For if you do, it is you who misses out. Amen.